right, everybody, welcome to BO Boys for Monday, August 9th. It's a raw feed. We're doing it live. I'm Clayton. Yeah, I'm Pat. And Clayton, we always start every episode by saying it's a jam-packed show. We can't waste time. We got to get into it. But today, more than ever, we got to get into it because we have I, a special guest feels like it's just downplaying. We have the special guest. We have... The, the the white whale that we've been chasing since the day we started B.O. Boys. He's finally here. The rumors are true. From Forbes, box office legend Scott Mendelson is with us. Wow. Welcome, Scott. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for coming on. It's because of introductions like that why I do podcasts like this. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're too kind. I, we're not nearly kind enough. You are, of course, the the inspiration for the the, the Bo Boys. We're the Bo Boys, but you're the Bo Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we get into it, why don't you? And I'd be disgusted by anyone who's listening to this who doesn't already know who you are. But uh, tell everyone why you are the legend. Why you are Scott Mendelson? What is your box office background? Uh, long story short, I've been following movies as a a commercial art form since i was about five Uh, i first noticed that gee the friday newspaper this was in the 80s when people read newspapers uh had really big colorful movie posters on fridays and those were pleasant to me obviously i I started watching movies on the regular when i was four five maybe six uh and even from the beginning before i really knew the nitty gritty. I was always interested in the financial side. Like I'm sure a lot of people of my generation, you know, Batman was the first mega hit that caught my attention, both as a movie and in terms of how well it did financially. Mm-hmm. That really was, you know, the, the, I would argue to a certain extent, it's the first modern blockbuster in the sense that it was a preordained mega hit that was, whose, whose success was almost entirely predicated on the IP. Yeah. Uh, obviously, yeah. gone with the wind, but, you know, give or take. And certain biblical stories come to mind. Um, but, yeah, yeah. so uh, two years later, I got a subscription to Entertainment Weekly for my family friend. And that was right in time for summer 91. And I kept track of everything week in and week out. And as the years went on, it was just the box office, the marketing, the, the, the macro conversations, the cause and effect um was always very interesting to me um i went to school i did study film theory criticism and then i moved out to los angeles to do something in the film industry i didn't know what mm-hmm. um got a little sidetracked by the whole you know family thing um and then around 2008 right after my first kid was born i started writing a, a just a random blog spot just for fun as a hobby you know and i grew up you know commenting on you know the, the first generation of movie bloggers, Sasha Stone, Dave Pollan, Jeff Wells, you know, people in that age group. Um, and now, now I'm about their age when they were doing it. I mean, they still are, but yeah. Um, so I started my own blog in early 2008. And I just, I kept doing it. Uh, I, I worked, you know, I did other jobs. I was a paralegal for a few years. And then in April, 2013, I got recruited by Forbes just as a as a contributor. They would you like to blog about the industry? And I said, sure. Thinking it would just be you know a few extra bucks to help pay up some bills and you know whatever. Right. No. No idea what what it would it would lead to. Yeah. I mean, it, it's without going into too many discrete details. By the time the second month rolled around, I knew that oh, 
I can do this as a job mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for better or worse, my stuff was that in- you know, interesting to people that cared about this stuff. So you are in the end feeding your family with box office analysis. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> it's that, something to aspire to. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. It's, it's, it's a higher, it's a higher plane of existence. So, so we are excited to have you here, Scott. So we start every episode by just plowing through the past weekend's top five. So we're going to let Clayton plow through this top five. And then we are going to get into it because, I mean, I've never seen box office Twitter be more buzzed than it has been this weekend with the Suicide Squad opening. So let's get to it. I'm I'm going to expect now Clayton's going to tell us how Suicide Squad made $100 million and is a giant hit and everyone's celebrating. All right, I'm going to try. See, this is going to be my fastest plow ever. I'm going to try not to make any side comments, although it is going to be very difficult because our number one movie, The Suicide Squad, made $26.2 million. Number two, Jungle Cruise made $15.8 million, down only 55%. It is now at 65.4 in its second weekend. Number three, Hold. I'm sorry, I mean Old made $4.1 million, uh, down only 40%. It is now standing at $38.4 million in its third weekend. Number four, Black Widow made $3.9 million, a 39% drop. Now, it's losing some theaters, lost 260 theaters, but it is now the domestic highest earner of the year, $174.2 million in its fifth weekend. And then rounding out... The top five, staying put, as Stillwater will do. Stillwater, number five, $2.8 million, down only 45%, added 80 theaters. It is now at $9.9 million, probably as we're speaking now on a Monday. I'm assuming it's a 10 in its second weekend. Here we go. That's your top five for this past weekend. So... I think I actually nailed last week our predictions, Clayton, of what the top five would be. The order, I had Stillwater at five, um, but I was way off on the opening number for the Suicide Squad. So yes, we, we were, were high on that. We I, were overly I, bullish. I thought it was it had a chance at 90 to 100. We went with 88 as our prediction. Scott is raising his eyebrows to me like, what did I get myself into? We thought that in the end... Giant superhero movie. It was it was going to play out the way that these things usually do, and it did not. So this movie is, in so many words, a box office disaster. Twenty six million, even with the low expectations that people started having in this last week. This is way lower than almost anyone would predict. Well, the low expectations were thirty. The low that expectation- was the bargain. That yes. was I'm not sorry. That was the basement of what they wanted it to do. Yeah, and it somehow dug lower than that. So Scott, you put out a great article on Forbes the other day talking about your ten reasons why the the Suicide Squad is a box office disaster. So I, I'm going to ask you though to lead with what has become. You know, your your theory, the thing that I think someday when you write a book, this is possibly the title of the book, The Tomb Raider Trap with the Suicide Squad. So could you explain 
to everyone again who I'd be disgusted if they don't know what this is already. But what is the Tomb Raider trap and how did this Suicide Squad movie fall right into it? The short version of the Tomb Raider trap is that it's when a well-marketed and much-anticipated movie, often a franchise picture, opens exceptionally well, despite lousy reviews, despite not being very good, and it drops very quickly, usually, but it still opens so high Mm -hmm. because of the preordained interest that it still becomes a money-making picture and a relative success. Cut to a few years later, you make a sequel because, hey, it made money. Obviously, people want more. You make a better sequel, oftentimes a much better sequel, but the audiences do not show up, uh, partially because the first film was so bad that once bitten, twice shy. And part of it is, you know, certain films, when you're dealing with franchises, people are only curious once. Just because everybody showed up to the live action Smurfs because, oh, it's a Smurfs movie, okay, doesn't mean they're going to want to watch the entire Smurfs trilogy. Um, you know, for, so the examples of this uh, Adams Family versus Adams Family values. God, that's a huge one. That that's one from our youth. Yeah. Yeah. Depending. I mean, again, I, because I followed this at the time, most adult critics did not like the first Adams Family, uh, and there was perception that it was only doing well because of the brand, because of the IP. And I'll be honest, I wasn't big on it either. I mm-hmm. tended to agree with that consensus. Adam's Family Values was, a, frankly, a modern comic masterpiece. Um, I still think it's one of the biggest jumps in quality for any comedy sequel. Yes. Um, but the, the interest wasn't there, A, because people weren't crazy about the first one. Or you know, even if they didn't hate it, they were just like, that was fine, whatever. Which, by the way, is the reaction to most people when you're dealing with most movies. Mm-hmm, you know, not, mm-hmm. not to get into the discourse, but when you ask norm, you know, regular folk what they thought of The Last Jedi, they'll say, it was fine. Right, when you ask right. them what they think of The Rise of Skywalker, they'll say, yeah, it was fine. Right. It's only in our weird media bubble in Civil War. Right, right. Uh, out in the streets, though, most people don't care about anything, so. Yeah. Which is nice. I don't have terribly strong opinions about, you know, sports. Right. Um, and that's fine. People that do, you know, are very knowledgeable in that. It can be, you know, very insightful in speaking of that. Right. I sometimes enjoy watching sports documentaries just because it's, you know, it's something that I'm not familiar with. So it's all new to me. Right. Right. But you're not going to get worked up about it. So, so people aren't getting, they're not getting excited by these first movies or they're getting turned off. So some of the examples I know you've said over the years, of course, is Tomb Raider. First one was terrible second one was much better but the second one bombed and i think one that me and clayton saw together in the theaters were both of the michael bay teenage mutant ninja turtle movies yes where that first one is nearly unwatchable and the second one would have been an amazing first teenage mutant ninja turtles movie they absolutely nailed it on the first on the second try yeah but the second one bombed a, people weren't crazy about the first one. Mm-hmm. And B, there's a large demographic that were curious about, you know, it was the first live action Ninja Turtles in, well, I would say 19, uh, 21 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a certain curiosity factor, but that curiosity was no longer there. Also, and this is something that happens a lot with kids' films, especially animated films. This is why animated film sequels have been struggling in the last two years. You have a film like uh, The Lego Movie. Mm -hmm. great reviews everybody loves it everybody sees it it plays as a four quadrant blockbuster which means that grown adults with or without kids 
or cool teenagers or cool college age kids want to see the Lego movie. Five years later, the Lego movie two comes out. I think it's as good, if not better than the first film. Mm. And I think the first one's very good, but the curiosity just isn't there. So it just plays as just a kid's flick. Is there ever an element of aging out with a character where you see someone like Peter Rabbit, right? Peter Rabbit 1, Big Smash, Peter Rabbit 2. Now, of course, it's a it was a COVID-era movie, got bounced around a lot, so that could have added to the confusion. But I do think even in the best circumstances, Peter Rabbit might have outstayed his welcome in a way. Well, yes and no. And if the record, I agree with you. I would say less outstaying its welcome than... You know, again, it was a film that played to more adults than it otherwise would have because people were curious. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, I like both Peter Rabbit films, frankly. I think they're fine. That they're not as good as Paddington 2 is not a war crime. Yeah. Um, but, and yeah, the second one always would have taken a tumble. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it has made three times its $45 million budget. So like a lot of, frankly, like a lot of smaller films released this summer, it is a hit. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know, with, with, with with all the talk of, oh, you know, theaters are doomed, no one's going to theaters, blah, blah, blah. You know, The Conjuring 3 has quadrupled its, or quintupled its budget. Uh, or right. does it, has almost quadrupled its budget. A Quiet Place has quintupled its budget. It's going to make about 90% of what the first one did, which absolutely could have happened in normal circumstances. Yeah, right. There was no guarantee that that film was going to do better than the first one. So the so, problem with Suicide Squad, though, is this movie costs $180 million, reportedly, and it's yeah. going to end up possibly... <laughs> topping out at 50 domestic you know i mean that that's the way it looks when it opens up at 26 so that first suicide squad movie the david ayers one that came out in 2016 maybe exact same weekend 2016 yeah so that movie was pretty much hated by critics normal audiences comic fans there wasn't really a fan base for it i think the only fan base that exists for that movie is for the people on the internet who are saying to release an alternate cut of it. Like that's the only movie people like a movie that is probably also terrible and doesn't exist. But anyway, no one liked that first one. How much do you think that played into this new suicide squad movie that made by James Gunn, really great reviews. People seem to like it. I know both Clayton and I liked it way more than the, the David Ayers version how much is that the reason why this bombed? People just didn't like the first one and they just did not want another one. I think it, it's quite a bit of the factor. You know, the first time opened $133 million despite terrible reviews. And frankly, despite some very publicized stories of studio meddling. I mean, without getting into the discourse, I do have quite a bit of sympathy for Air because say what you will about the Zack Snyder situation, his Justice League was meddled with because of movies he made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Air had Suicide Squads, you know, tinkered with because somebody else's film had a bad reception, and somebody else's film, Deadpool, had a very good reception. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even so much his movie was quote unquote problematic; it was that these other films changed the narrative of what the studio thought they wanted. But right. anyway, that's um, and they cut a really good trailer that people liked more than the movie. You know, when good marketing goes wrong, right. um, mm-hmm. but. The first film did well because it was, you know, it had the first cinematic live action Harley Quinn. It had the debut of the new Joker. It had a cameo from Ben Affleck's Batman. It was a big, glossy comic book superhero movie back when those things were just almost rare enough to be a big deal. And it was a Will Smith movie. 
Yeah, it was uh, a Will Billy. Smith starred vehicle. Wow. And I cannot overstate enough how much that mattered as whether it's an added value element or a major draw to people that otherwise wouldn't have given a darn about a Suicide Squad movie. And, you know, history, you know, we now have a trilogy of Will Smith sequels without Will Smith movies that bombed. Independence Day Resurgence, Men in Black International, and now the Suicide Squad. And not to toot my own horn, but I warned him about this two years ago after Aladdin came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, After Men in Black came out, too, obviously. Um, Staying on Will Smith, I feel like he comes out of this uh, weekend as a winner because it cements to me the fact that it when the first Suicide Squad was a big hit, it wasn't that Will Smith happened to be in it. And I I feel like a lot of people, and Clayton, I'm looking at you, when that movie was a big hit, didn't want to chalk that up to being a Will Smith hit. They wanted to say, oh, he's just an IP. And he's in an IP movie. Same thing with Aladdin. I think now, you know, after Birds of Prey bombed and Suicide Squad bombed, it's pretty clear that, yeah, Will Smith being in that movie helped make The Suicide Squad such a huge hit. That movie doesn't make $700 million anywhere close. If you reversed it and, yeah. Yeah. And and if, if Idris Elba at the time was the star of that movie, I, I don't know what percentage of box office you're lopping off. You're waving your hand. It seems like a lot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, it's... Yeah. it's and, you know, obviously, Idris Elba is a wonderful actor and interesting yeah. charismatic screen presence, but not every great actor is a butts-in-the-seats draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, this, this misconception that happens when we mistake film Twitter for the real world. Yes, right. we, we have a saying here that tweets aren't ticks. And, uh, yeah, and I think that is very, very true uh, with Idris. And I think, to a certain extent, Harley Quinn. I drank the Kool-Aid before Birds of Prey. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I, I believe that she was a major factor in that film's success. And I think as an added value element, she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, you know, I feel, you know, I think going with an R rating for Birds of Prey was a bad idea. And again, I wrote about that three years ago uh, for a myriad of reasons. One of which is that most female centric action fantasy films are R rated films. Underworld, Resident Evil, uh, Atomic Blonde. Or they're just very dark, violent PG-13 films like Hunger Games, Salt, you know, what have you. So in that sense, Birds of Prey being an R made it less different than mm-hmm. the competition. Yeah, and that that's a film I don't feel like needed to be an R. I This Suicide Squad definitely needed the R. I mean, this was an R film. I mean, to, to do what James Gunn wanted to do with it, right? It needed the R. But I don't think Birds of Prey necessarily needed that R. It's frustrating Division. because it's, it's a better movie because it's R. It's, you know, if, if for no other reason than how the action scenes aren't cut to ribbons. You know, you actually see you know, blows landing on the body. You hear bones crunching. You, you see the, the wide ge- geography of the action, partially because they're not trying to cut it to a PG-13. Mm-hmm. Um, but commercially, yes, it was a mistake. Yeah. Um, and I think there, I think in both cases, to the extent that Harley Quinn does have a fan base, it's partially kids. I mean, can you imagine if you're like a ten-year-old Harley Quinn fan, and the, you know, there's been three movies, and the only one that you were allowed to see was the lousy one? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And but but wh- at this point, at this point, do you think she is anything more than just a Halloween costume? And when we're looking at that now, in this Suicide Squad, all she's wearing is a red dress and boots. This ain't a Halloween costume. 
I mean, at least with the last two, you had something that people could dress up as in October. But now you don't got nothing. You got a red dress. Um, I, I will vouch for the the jacket and pants she wears in the opening scene. But your broader point is not incorrect. I think she's an added value element in an otherwise mm-hmm. enticing package. The problem with the Suicide Squad as it exists now from conception is that it had nothing to offer the general moviegoer other than, oh, it's another Suicide Squad film. Right, yes, right. And that wasn't... Now, even before COVID, now obviously during COVID, that was not nearly enough to get people into the theater, especially when it was a known entity and there was deep dissatisfaction or at least, frankly, general audience apathy. Because not everybody hated the movie. Most people, again, it was fine, whatever. I saw it once in theaters. My kid watched it a couple times on TV, whatever. Um, but well, it wasn't enough to drive the casuals back for another go around. You so look at long. the first Suicide Squad. You had a. It's the first Suicide Squad. It's the first Harley Quinn. It's the first New Joker. It's a major cameo from Batman, and this film had none of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, getting back to you know, film Twitter is not the real world. Most people don't know or care who James Gunn is. That's what I was going to ask next. Yeah, but they don't. Yeah. That that to me is was a big problem here is that I feel like Warner Brothers was leading with the marketing of James Gunn. They were trying to make James Gunn the star of this. And the problem with that is I don't think people uh, uh, see any auteurship in Marvel movies. So I don't think other than film, you know, hardcore film fans, film Twitter... I don't think the general public takes away that James Gunn is Guardians of the Galaxy. It's Marvel is Guardians of the Galaxy. So saying James Gunn, director, Guardians of the Galaxy, people are just going to be like, oh, wait, is this Marvel? Oh, no, it's not Marvel. So what do I care? Exactly. It, that that was a, a huge problem. He seemed to be the centerpiece of the marketing for the Suicide Squad, which, I mean, if you want to talk about that, obviously was a, was a big mistake. Well, it's it's not unlike the notion of Skydance hiring John Lasseter, scandals notwithstanding, that's a whole different conversation, mm-hmm. in the hopes that he would turn Skydance animation into the next Pixar, forgetting the fact that in the eyes of most people, Pixar is Disney. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, Disney, even before, you know, Bob Iger bought all the good IP and took over Hollywood, you know, Disney has a brand. Most people thought of Toy Story as the Disney computer animated film mm-hmm. and so forth mm-hmm. and so forth. So in the same way that, yes, as you said, you take James Gunn and you take him out of Guardians of the Galaxy, you take him out of the Marvel Universe, and he's just you know a work-for-hire filmmaker in the right. eyes of most people. Right. It, it's I get, I mean, hiring him makes creative sense because he made a good movie. He made the movie better. But making him the centerpiece of the marketing is the problem. And I think it's like you said, it comes down to they didn't have a real selling point and they didn't have a movie star in this movie. Yeah. So how do you sell this movie other than it's superhero stuff? And I think, you know, all due respect to Warner Brothers and their marketing department, you know, does the best with what they've got. And they are very good at turning non franchisee films into event films uh you know uh american sniper uh gravity uh inception magic mike um 
several others that I'm, are coming to me right now. Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, that massively overperformed in North America. That could have absolutely just been a for Comic-Con nerds only picture, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. Um, and I don't think COVID helped in the heights, but I think it would have done a little bit better had it opened last year in normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Crazy Rich Asians. That was sold as an event, an event movie, regardless of your demographic. Successfully so. Um, so the Meg was Warner Brothers, right? Yes, and that's a miracle, right? That's exactly the kind of film that Legendary, which did not make this, Legendary makes for like two hundred million dollars, and then you know, oh, because we'll do great in China, and then they're shocked when it only does a hundred million in China and bombs in North America. Yeah. Right. Instead, that was a hit in both in both marketplaces and around the world. Would you give any credit to Statham on that? Yes and no. I mean, yes, he's an added value element. The idea of Jason Statham versus a giant shark, that's fun and marketable in more a way than just, oh, it's another Jason Statham action picture. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And Warner Brothers Marketing sold that film in a very tug-in-cheek, family-friendly way. Oh, yeah, the trailer for that was was very popular. Yeah, because the trailers were very funny. Uh, And the film, which is very good, is it's PG-13, and it's just scary and violent, violent enough to make kids think they're getting away with something. I was worried about this R rating, and we got an email uh, about this topic from one of our listeners who said that the R rating is going to hurt this because a lot of the films that are doing well, teenagers are going to. And these teenagers are going because they want to get out of the house, they want to get away from their parents. But this is an R-rated movie, so they can't go just by themselves or with a group because they need to show ID. And that's a huge deal. That's a bigger deal than I think we were giving credit for. But the R rating was scaring me off because you're seeing these movies that are doing well and it's because it's being drive by the youth market. Yes. Right. And the other thing that a listener mentioned was because, and I guess we could get a, you know, we're the BO boys, you're a BO analyst, we're not the streamo boys, but to talk a little bit about the streaming aspect of this, a listener mentioned that rather than in traditional times, a teenager or a younger person who wants to see the movie, they get a guardian to take them to see the R-rated movie. Now they could just watch this R-rated movie at home on HBO. So you're losing that teenager as a customer and you're losing the guardian that they would have dragged along with them in olden times when it wasn't just on streamo. So Scott, what effect do you think if any, the HBO Max Day and Date had on it. And I guess we'll we'll caveat that with the news that we're getting today, you know, reports from Samba.tv, which I don't know if we're going to go all in on trusting Samba.tv, but we've been using them. Um, they're they're all we have now, right now. The, they're all we have, so we love them. So they're saying that Suicide Squad did not do that well on HBO Max, that it did not get as much viewership in its opening weekend as Mortal Kombat did back in April. In fact, down 26% from how many people watch Mortal Kombat on HBO in April. So which is all to say, I don't think in the end, the HBO day and date mattered that much because it didn't seem like people wanted to watch this anywhere. Mm-hmm. They just didn't want it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we, we, and obviously the last year and change has been insane, you know, very frustrating for me because I'm having to parse out this, you know, a theoretically untrustworthy data from third parties that I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And it's so 
whatever, that it almost it almost validates any point of view. Right. Um, so, but anyway, that's that's my problem, not yours. Um, there is thus far a ceiling on people that will watch a theatrical Warner Brothers film on HBO Max. Uh, so far, the record is three point eight. I think it's three point six million households for Mortal Kombat. Mm-hmm. I think Godzilla v Kong had about three point five over the five day weekend. So, um, and this one had two point eight. So, by those standards, it's high, but that's still not good. I mean, that's less than an episode of The Sopranos would have gotten back in the day. That the entire industry is going to war over streaming, which results in a bunch of content that on a content by content basis, you're, you're fighting over like two to three million viewers. Yeah, it's, the it's numbers crazy. numbers that we get on TV, anything else canceled. Right, right. I mean, you're looking at a, an episode of, of The Bachelor or, or, or pro wrestling would double the amount of people that watched a $200 million movie. So, I mean, so let's talk about some bigger picture stuff coming out of the Suicide Squad opening weekend. So again, this is a disaster. Do you think this affects, because we've been seeing some chatter, a lot of doomsday talk out on film Twitter, on box office Twitter, that this opening weekend is going to possibly start a domino effect of big fall movies moving? You know, I think people are giving it to see what Free Guy does this weekend. But do you think there are some big warning signs that come out of this? Could this could we look back at the Suicide Squad bombing and say this is the reason that Bond moved, Venom moved, theaters closed? What, what do you think? Or, or are you going to calm us all down? Well, yes and no. For the, for the record... It would be entirely possible because No Time to Die is such a strange situation where it's MGM, they only have the domestic box office, Universal distributing overseas, um, and they don't have like a streaming shortfall, you know, a, a streaming, you know, safety net. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if Bond moves and everything else stays. Oh my God. Bond flees oh. again. The first to go is also the last to go. Right. This is not a prediction, but, you know, it's, 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 they are in a different, Ball, they are in a different sandbox than, say, a Disney movie that, you know, Disney could announce on Thursday, up, oh, we're doing Disney Plus premiere for Shanghai. Sorry, right. or Shang-Chi, excuse me. Right. I, I feel like that's going to happen. And Warner Brothers is basically saying, look, we promised a year of HBO Max theatricals, and, you know, as promised in 2022, we're going back to the window, 45 days, at least for AMC and Sinmark, and that's going to be Sinworld, which is regal, mm-hmm. and I assume Sinmark will join them, and, the, you know, so... The forty-five window is day window is going to be the nor- the normal window next mm-hmm. year for at least for Disney and Warner Brothers, obviously for Sony because they they I think to Sony's credit they're still trying to be the last holdout as the last conventional movie studio, right? Um, and I guess Universal and Paramount for the most part they have kept a pretty decent theatrical window. I mean, Quiet Place Two got a full or not a full, but got that yeah, which I think in the end is enough because. That's when these movies are making all their money anyway. The 90-day, 45-day, it was that's overkill at this point anyway. So you get three, four weeks of theatrical exclusive. That's going to be where a movie makes all its money. So Things have been so heavily front-loaded for so long before this. And the only the risk of that, and for record, you're not wrong. Most movies, even ones we think of as being leggy, tend to make maybe 90%, you know, 88, 90% of their money in the first, you know, 35 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, 
the danger has always been if you tell if people know that a movie is going to come to a streaming service or onto VOD or whatever in a month or even 45 days, are they going to make the choice to not see that film in its third or fourth weekend? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, well, I mean, going back to the Suicide Squad, this is a movie where in some ways the good reviews almost work against it because like I know this is a movie I've been seeing movies in the theater every week since I got vaxxed and waxed. And so I love seeing stuff in the theaters, but this dropped on Thursday night. I knew I was seeing something else in the theaters this weekend. It's sitting there on my TV and I knew that there's a good chance I was going to like it. So I just watched it. And again, the viewership for this isn't very high. So that's not really the main problem. But this is a movie where good reviews could have led to it being leggy at the box office if it was not also on HBO. Whereas now, good reviews may just mean people are going to watch it tonight or Wednesday night on HBO when they would have gone to the theater next week. I like that theory. I might have to borrow that yeah. or not. But just make sure you mention that because that's actually interesting. That actually had not occurred to me. Yes, the film got overwhelmingly positive reviews. Um, I think part of that is, uh, I mean, I like it. I think it's a good film, but I do think some of that hyperbole was just a comparison to the 2016 version. Right. Yeah. Um, but whatever, I'm not going to you know critique the critics. Everyone's so, whatever. Um, I do think some of the reviews, you know, but I, again, to a sort of a general audience member, you know, how much good is it to tell people that this is like a trauma movie with a budget? Right, right. That I mean, appeals it to for me. Us. <laughs> it worked for us. And it and I agree with Pat. Thursday night, it was available Thursday evening. It would have taken me longer to walk to the theater that I live 20 minutes away from than to click a button. And I was psyched for this movie because it was a trauma film, like a, a trauma superhero movie. And so I couldn't resist it. And I do think so that did play a factor, at least to some hardcores, those hardcores that would normally go out to the theater and be out there salivating, making a mess on the seats at seven o'clock on a, on a Thursday night. Right. Well, I think you're right. And this, ironically, this was the first Thursday preview that Warner Brothers has had since well, the first advanced night preview since I think Tenet. Yeah. And before that, whatever, I think the way back and, and that was their last pre-COVID theatrical release. Oh, my God. The way back. What a. What a moment in time. Those movies don't, you know, haven't played commercially for a while. Right. And God bless them. Warner Brothers keeps trying, you know, keeps trying. You know, this is yeah. a post for later after Reminiscence, Reminiscence probably bombs. But I'm inclined to argue that Warner Brothers is quote unquote going broke overestimating the taste of the American movie. Mm-hmm. So looking ahead again on some of this possible doomsday scenarios from Suicide Squad, I think that the big one that has to hold because I think if this comes out, you know, let's, let's hope that there's not, you know, big changes in COVID and that, you know, the pandemic doesn't change anything, but, but barring that, I do think that if we get to venom two, venom, let there be carnage end of September, that is the movie. Cause I, I Clayton and I both think there could be problems with, with Shang-Chi in early September, like that yes. underperforming for a Marvel movie. But I think if we get to Venom, let there be carnage, that could really bring us back to 
some degree of box office normalcy. So, so Scott, what do you think of that? Is that the movie we have to get to? Is that the movie that has to stay? In fact, looking at the studio, Sony is the studio to keep an eye on. Sony's got about five genuinely big commercial pictures that in normal times would might be successful. Uh, Transylvania 4, Venom, um, Ghostbusters Afterlife, a couple others that aren't coming to me right now, and of course, Spider-Man No Way Home at Christmas. Uh, mm-hmm. They have a more stacked slate than their competition, you know, Disney, Warner Brothers, you know, Universal. Um, and again, Warner Brothers and, and Disney have a fail-safe DB. The Warner Brothers films will be on HBO Max regardless. Disney mm-hmm. can always say, you know, sorry, the, vac- you know, the, the pandemic isn't over. We're still doing, you know, a, a, a concurrent release for, you know, Shang-Chi and Encanto, Eternals, right. and, and well, I guess West- that's the weird thing is the Fox films, I don't know what they can do with those. I don't think they can get away with doing premiere actors for West Side Story. Is Death on the Nile ever going to come out, or is that that? <laughs> I hope it gets to. I, mean, I don't hope, but it would be funny if it gets delayed so often that everyone in the cast has been canceled by the time it opens. I mean, are we have said Clayton and I have talked about? Uh, you know, you mentioned Ghostbusters Afterlife. That movie cannot get pushed back much further because the the young cast of that movie is not going to be young enough to promote it anymore in a way that is not terrifying to the viewer. Like, you push that back anymore, them doing the press junkets... I hope you enjoy this movie. Have me my wine. Exactly. So that that has to come out. I mean, do you think that some of these movies like Bond, you know, maybe not so much Venom, that didn't get pushed back as much, but some of these movies, they just have to come out because they get too stale. Yes, and that that's that's I think that was Warner Brothers thinking for better or worse with Wonder Woman 84. Um and I don't necessarily agree with that thinking all due respect. That should have come out this June. Yeah, if they had held it till June like I was begging them to do so, it might not have done a, you know, even even before COVID, I figured that movie was going to do anywhere from 650 to 850. Mm-hmm. It was never going to do a billion dollars. And I mean that with no disrespect. Mm-hmm. It was going to make a little bit less domestic. It was going to do a little bit more overseas for a, maybe a slightly bigger worldwide total. And mm-hmm. that would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, it was a sacrificial lamb. It was the big, big guaranteed hit that they had to offer on HBO Max to sort of justify releasing the whole slate. Because right. if you pick and choose the junk, then you're going to be picking and choosing the junk. Right, right. Yeah, little, little things wouldn't have been enough to get uh, get a lot of coverage. Yeah. Although, ironically, absent that plan, Tom and Jerry, I would have said, would be a just HBO Max film. And that's the film that f- saved the movie theaters. We were so we were so off on Tom and Jerry. We had no clue this generation loved Tom and Jerry so much. I was shocked that, you know, I get a text. Uh, I, you know, again, I, it's been very depressing to write box office since then. I, I get a text on Saturday morning, like, hey, great news. We did $4 million. Holy shit. Yeah. Four million dollars. <laughs> well, we so surely I thought. Okay, we thought that Snake Eyes Origins, GI Joe Origins, was gonna not do well. Uh, the the assumption I didn't think it was gonna do well, but the fact that it did less business than Tom and Jerry did. <laughs> well, it was the Shocking. first Tom and Jerry versus the third GI Joe. Oh, well, you're not. You're discounting the 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 Merrimax Tom and Jerry from 1993. <laughs> Yes, I am, for the purposes of this discussion, yes. Um, and that actually goes to a very good point, something that, that you know is a conundrum in terms of you know, will films get pushed back or not. 
most of the films that stayed this summer were either horror films that could afford to gross less and still do okay, or they were frankly commercially questionable franchise pictures. Mm -hmm. There's a reason Paramount swapped G.I. Joe with Top Gun. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's 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 been very frustrating to watch pundits and or Wall Street talk about, oh, this proves that theaters are doomed. It's like the future of theatrical cannot be decided on a summer that's highlighted by Space Jam 2, Snake Eyes and the Suicide Squad. Yes. You make such a great point, and this is what we're trying to get out there. We're, we're trying, trying to calm people. We're trying to say that, that there's, there's no difference here, here than, than any other year. year. If, if the, the product, product isn't good, good people yes. won't go. No. And, and that is the thing that is fr frustrating because the next slate that you have coming up, there's pretty much a bunch of stinkers up until yeah. Carnage, which, I mean, could be really good. It I, looks really fun. Yeah, I love that first Venom movie, and I think we all think that's going to be a big hit. But we're going to have to wade through so many things where we're going to have to say it's not—it's not the end of the world. It's theaters aren't going to close. It's—it's it's just bad product. It's bad product. But how long and can you say that? Intentionally so. Yes. Um, and I, I don't say that in a conspiratorial sense, but you know they held the goodies until theoretically everyone hoped that you know by mid July, mid August, everybody would be vaccinated and. It would be all be, yeah. you know, happy times, you know, from August. And then Shane Chi would kick ass and be the first Labor Day blockbuster. And then Venom 2 would kick off the end of the year streak mm -hmm. where you've got, you know, I'm not super confident about Dune, but whatever. Meaning um, no. Dune, Venom, No Time to Die, Eternals, Encanto, Spider-Man, Matrix 4, West Side Story, yada, yada, yada. Jackass 4. Yes, exactly. Which everyone will see instead of Dune. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Wow, that's a great call. Can we say at this point, though, trust the process? Are we at the point where we can say to people, just trust the process? These movies are movies that they're on the shelf. They're getting staler. We, they need to put it out. Free Guy needs to be free. Free Guy needs to be out in theaters. Let's get it over with. Take the Band-Aid off. We can move on to the next Ryan Reynolds thing where he tries to be, you know, uh, a Deadpool in a different, uh, in like a collared shirt or whatever it's going to be. I've uh, no animosity towards him, but I think, you know, the fact that they're using Deadpool to promote this film so much shows what they have. Well, they have an original picture that's a star star driven concept in a world where that's impossible to sell. It's yeah. a pretty good movie. And I think You've the tragedy of this is that, you know, obviously it's a multifaceted tragedy here, but that COVID circumstances decreased right as we started getting some genuinely good or better movies, mm -hmm. uh, old uh, uh, Suicide Squad, Free Guy, mm -hmm. um, and you know I I can't speak for the rest. I have not seen Reminiscence of the Protege yet. Of the two, the two absolute biggies, Black mm -hmm. Widow F nine. Black Widow came out now because it had to because the Disney train, the Disney Plus train can't stop. Mm -hmm. And as you know, because I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen the film, you know the film sets up the Hawkeye show, and they need to get to the less commercially surefire films like Chang Chi and Eternals, which are new films or setting up new heroes that nobody's ever heard of. You know, I think in normal circumstances, Ant-Man slash Doctor Strange business would have been fine for any of those. Mm -hmm. um, but then they get to the stuff, you know, the more, the more, you know, the more people have heard of this stuff, Thor, Thor 4, Doctor Strange 2, uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Captain Marvel 2 or the Marvels or, you know, Ant-Man, Quantumania. These are the, those are the films that are going to decide whether Marvel has a future after Endgame. 
um, or the extent of its future after Endgame. Right, and for the record, right. I have no reason to be pessimistic. But that being said, the fact that Black Widow is only going to do Ant-Man numbers doesn't mean much for Marvel in the broad scheme of things. Right, because, I mean, with Black Widow 2, uh, it is a prequel to a, a movie that came out three years ago. It, the character's been dead for years. You know, basically it's opening as the star of the movie is suing the studio. I mean, this was a movie that was not... Even though Scarlett Johansson's a big star and this is a big character, it's not A-plus Marvel. So the fact that this didn't light the world on fire is not... Uh, it's not end times. This summer was, I think, whether Clayton or Scott said it, this is a let's get this over with summer. This was getting stuff out there that could not sit on the... It was spoiling. You know, this was... We had to eat these donuts. We either eating them or we're throwing them out. Mm-hmm. But but we can't let them sit on the shelf anymore. And F9, I think, to be fair, I think Universal really wanted that to be sort of a tenet that worked. Yeah. You know, the, the let's come, you know, welcome back to the blockbusters. Yes. We've missed you. And to their credit, it pretty much worked. Yeah. Had Delta not increased, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Or at least yeah. it wouldn't be this grim about it. Yeah. The the drops on F9 have been pretty pretty okay since that first big drop. It's going to be with a count, you know, if you count Tokyo Drift and Hobson Shaw as spin-offs, mm-hmm. then F9 will be the leggiest Fast and Furious sequel since Too Fast Too Furious in 2003. Wow. That's awesome. Now, Scott, we we I, just really quickly, and I know mm-hmm. Pat, we have so much to talk about, but I, I just really need we need a tiebreaker on this because uh, Pat mentioned how big of a star ScarJo is, and and she is definitely a celebrity. But in my estimation, I don't think she's a huge box office star. What is your take on ScarJo? Is she a box office star? Does she put asses in the seats? I would say no. I think she puts more asses and more seats than a lot of the other Marvel stars. Okay, you know, I I think. You know, obviously, Chris Hemsworth starring in Rough Night makes less money than Scarlett Johansson's Rough Night does. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Paul mm-hmm. Rudd is a comedy star, so that's a different conversation. But, and unfortunately, as we saw with Thirteen Bridge, or 21 Bridges, which was a good movie, by the way, people that like Black Panther don't show up for Chadwick Boseman star vehicles. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And come what may, Scarlett Johansson does have Lucy, Lucy on her resume, yes. which nobody else in the MCU does off the top of my head. Pat always uses Lucy. That's his ace. Well, that's his know, ace. That's why I overestimated Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Um, Which still did well internationally, or did some business internationally. It did okay. It just did not enough. It, it was an expensive movie. It completely stiffed in North America because nobody cared. It looked. It didn't look good. Didn't get good reviews. Uh, I don't think the controversies. Again, that stuff you know lives and dies on Twitter. Nobody else cares. Absolutely. Right, right. They just didn't want to see the movie. It didn't have anything to do with tweets. Yeah. yeah no, and none of these controversies that we hear about, you know, not the In the Heights controversy, not the Stillwater controversy, not the Peter Rabbit allergy controversy. None of the <laughs> yeah. stuff. That was a great it's one. morbidly curious to general audiences. They will click on the articles because it's kind of, it's gossip. Right. But it doesn't actually affect real world decision making. And no. Stillwater is at $10 million. This small film, Matt Damon has drawing power. Adults are going to see that film. 
which is what everybody's fearing that adults aren't going back to the theater. So there, there are some bright spots. I mean, you know, Jungle Cruise doing what it did in the second weekend, old holding the way it did. These are all good news stories that are being overshadowed by The Suicide Squad, a film that people just didn't want. Yeah. If, if I seem grouchy about it online, it's that it, to me, it's no, you know, good, you know, it's a better film, don't get me wrong, but it's no different than Terminator Dark Fate and X Men Dark Phoenix. Yeah. In this, situ- in this circumstance, even before COVID, when theatrical is absolutely struggling against the streaming revolution, when, you know, everybody's back or against the wall, how dare you spend $180 million to give us an installment of a franchise that audiences have already said, often more than once, that they don't want. Yeah. Right. Where do you, what do you think about that issue of the scale of these budgets? Because looking at something like The Suicide Squad, super funny movie. There's a version of this movie that James Gunn, I think, could make that is like $50 million. And is it a worse movie? I don't think so, because it is just less special effects. This movie is good because the act, John Cena is hilarious. And the script is really funny. And I don't see where you need $180 million to make that. So do you think the budgets are going to have to change? My favorite beat in The Suicide Squad, it's right at the beginning, and I'll be vague in case people haven't seen it. The, the team is dispatching and something goes wrong. And there's a conversation between one actor and, and the, the people on the mic about whether a mistake was made and information was not relayed in the proper way. Mm. And Walla Davis turns around and gives a look to one of her subordinates. That's the most brutal slow burn that I've seen. And it's, it was the biggest laugh I've had in the entire year of movies. And I'm pretty sure that scene cost about nothing. Yeah. Right. Because it's five, you know, it's three, four people in an office doing work at a computer to monitor. Right. Right. Yeah. I, it, it it's it's interesting because I feel like the last you know I'll say ten years but it's been more than that have been moving us to this place where the only things people care about are the biggest biggest movies that you've got you know the most of the money is made by a smaller percentage of giant movies and if the ceiling for box office is going to start to get lower because of day and date streaming because of you know, less people going to the movies going forward. Is that going to have to change? And then the thing that you're going to see more of are maybe not everything still water, but you know, more stuff like old versions of something like suicide squad that costs 50 million instead of 180, you know, more comedies. Is this actually going to lead to more of the kind of stuff that we'd rather see? Idealistically. Yes. And First of all, I mean, even in you know the present tense environment, Deadpool cost fifty-eight million dollars. Mm-hmm. Deadpool two cost, which after the first one made what seven hundred and sixty-five million dollars, that one still only cost one hundred and ten. Mm-hmm. Logan costs ninety-seven million dollars. Logan opened with eighty-eight million dollars, which is great for Logan, absolutely a huge hit. But it was still barely half of what Deadpool opened to. Mm-hmm. So holding up Deadpool as Something that can be easily replicated is a recipe for failure. And that's partially what happened. Um, and, you know, I just, by happenstance, I watched the first Deadpool with, with my 10 year old. It's perfect age because, you know, it's still young. He's still young. He's old enough that he can handle it, but he's young enough that he thinks it's, you know, amazing. Yeah. Right. It's eye opening. Yeah. Um, 
and he closed his own eyes during all the sex scenes, so I didn't have to have any uncomfortable <laughs> talks. It's like, okay, whatever. I don't have to explain what begging is. Um, <laughs> but those films, especially the first one, and I have my issues with the first one. I think it's a very generic origin story. But it was sold as and embraced as a shaggy jog, PG-rated, fun-for-the-whole-family romantic comedy that also had comical R-rated violence mm -hmm. that was okay because 99% of it was directed at bad guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that movie is a very different movie than Logan or The Suicide Squad or, you know, Lexi Alexander's Punisher Warzone or, or you know, Joker, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Now, Joker, yeah, obviously, Jesus, that, that I think Joker was sort of the culmination of an entire generation that only watches franchises films. <laughs> so when they saw something like that, that looked like an old school movie, it just blew their minds. Right, right, right. They're like, yeah, exactly. It's like a generation that hadn't seen Taxi Driver. So this is new to them. Um, that's the value add of Joker is that it's a 70s movie. But how do you do a Suicide Squad without the biggest IP, the biggest Oscar winning uh, IP that uh, comic book movies have with the Joker. And I don't care if it's a Leto Joker. It's a Joker. So just put the Joker in your Suicide Squad movie. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's funny in retrospect because it's, it's you know, considering how much Jared Leto was allegedly trimmed out of Suicide Squad and considering how nervous some people and, you know, whatever, they made the right call at the end. Some people at Warner Brothers were about Joker. I think contrary to other belief, the studio is less gotta have Joker all the time than we might give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, and you know, whether you like Joker or not, he is a movie star. It's him. It's Leo. So, so more looking ahead type of stuff. We're, we're all, I think, in, a, in on the same page of trying to calm the masses. Sky is not falling. Let's get to Venom. Let there be carnage. But how do how do you feel the movie theaters themselves are going to be able to handle this? I mean, I guess if stuff doesn't move and the box office picks up in the fall, which we could have a summer movie season in the fall, then they should be all right. But are we at a dangerous point where if things do move or if the box office doesn't come back because movies move or the pandemic or whatever... Are we getting to that point where theaters, uh, theater chains could be in trouble? Uh, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that to be a, I mean, it's not a prediction, but yes, mm -hmm. if theaters have to close again, of course, that's going to be a, a challenge. I will say, and I don't want to speak out of turn, I'm, I'm, I haven't done tons of research on this, but I imagine if theater chains need another bailout, that a Joe Biden administration would be more sympathetic than a Donald Trump one was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's... I'm throwing that out there as something to, to look into. Well, a, th a theory that we, Clayton and I have talked about a lot in the last year that I want to throw out there is, what do you see as the future possibility of studios buying movie theater chains? Because, I mean, as the distribution models become, you know, you want to be the producer and you want to be the distributor, you know, to me, the Disney's dream scenario is they make this stuff, they put the stuff in the Disney theaters and they put the stuff on the Disney streamer. You know, like, do 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 you see that as something that... Because now it is legal. It used to be illegal. And I think in the last year or two, that Just rule recently. was changing. Yeah, you could be the producer and the distributor, own the theater chains, all that. 
Um, yes, the Paramount decrees were struck down in late 2019. Now, to be fair, and I, I, I speak out of ignorance here, mm-hmm. I don't know if there are several more steps along the legal process before it becomes all good as gold. Mm-hmm. You know, the media, by you know, understandably, tends to report on step one, and sometimes step three, four, five, six never actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know, I've, you know, um, I don't think studios necessarily want to take on another business venture that doesn't have a huge profit margin. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, Disney would be buying theaters to what? Make money off concessions? Although I guess, I guess to the profit margin of a movie theater is less because they are splitting the ticket revenue with the, with the movie producer. So I guess if you are the movie producer, then the theaters just become another way of charging for the movie. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's, that makes sense too. And Again, they could. Uh, I think I would be more. I would be more expected to see streamers buying small theater chains yeah. just to offer up theatrical screenings of their films. And this is sort of a good news for theaters. It would be a way to distinguish the wheat from the chaff. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very telling. Or maybe it was very telling. Maybe I'm being optimistic that. Netflix was able to make Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead a big deal movie, at least in the media coverage, purely by giving it a, you know, a 600 screen Cinemark release a week before. Didn't make much money. It was never going to. But it was a way to distinguish that this is a big move. This is this is better and more interesting than your average Netflix original. Theatrical still has that prestige to it. And that's what I think is even in the age of streaming, if a movie makes it into the theater it has a prestige to it. It has an extra something to it. That's why those numbers are important. That's why it didn't really matter what The Suicide Squad... And come on, adding a the does not differentiate a movie from an older movie. That is so nuts that they just added the the. But the fact that that movie, even if it would have done Bafo Stremo on HBO Max, the this opening weekend would tarnish it. It just would. Because... Right now, that yes, you're right. There's still a certain prestige in theatrical. The example I always use is that you know, Disney was able to charge thirty bucks for premiere access for Mulan because that film was envisioned as a two hundred million dollar global theatrical release. You take that away, and it's Lady of the Tramp. Nobody's yes. paying an extra thirty bucks to watch Lady of the Tramp. I hate that they did it. And again, I'm not talking good and evil here, but I hate that Netflix basically <laughs> dropped a half a billion dollars and stole knives out from the movie theaters. But they were only able, that property was only worth that much money because it was such a theatrical success. Right. That's so true. Right. And that's the conundrum right now, which is that everyone's talking about, oh, streaming's the future. Streaming's going to kill theaters. You know, we don't need movie theaters. And that may be true in, in some dark future. But right now, these streaming platforms are being sold on, look at all these theatrical movies we have right at your fingertips. Yep. That's right. how HBO Max is selling it. It's saying, look, this is also in the theater. Yes, that's why it's special. Right. And even Netflix, you know, I mean, it's no secret that, you know, you look at their daily top 10 and more often than not, there'll be some random studio programmer that everybody forgot, you know, right. as their top most viewed movie. Sometimes Absolutely. I'll write about them just for fun. But, you know, like like The Losers was the most viewed movie for a couple of days last week. The other Suicide Squad movie with Idris Elba from, you know, 10 years ago. Right. It'll just be like The American President is the most popular movie on Netflix. You know why? Because at some point it was in the movie theaters and people know that that's still special. So with something like Knives Out or, you know, these other big Netflix movies, 
the more and more you, you think about it, it does just feel like they leave so much money on the table by not giving these movies some kind of big theatrical run. And especially with these Knives Out sequels, I think they are crazy if they don't at least give a weekend or two of bi- not just the Army of the Dead uh, or whatever the Zack Snyder movie was called, uh, you know, 500 theater opening, but to not give that movie just like two weeks of exclusive 3,000 seat, you know, 3,000 theater openings and collect 60, 70 million dollars of box office off Knives Out. And then more people, I think, would want to watch it on Netflix two weeks later. I agree. And I think, I think, I mean, again, I, I, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball. I think Army of the Dead was a test run after the, the opening shot. Mm-hmm. I think we are going to see more of that. With certain prestige titles, you are going to see some, you know, maybe a two-week, three-week, you know, you know, as we've seen for several Oscar contenders, frankly, right. uh, for Netflix slash Amazon slash certainly the Apple TV stuff. Right. I mean, you don't get Scorsese making, you know, Killers of the East, whatever that movie's called. Flower Moon. Without, sorry, yes, Killers of the Flower Moon, without, you know, in, having some semblance of a theatrical release. Oh, right. that's, I think that's going to be a wide release, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, and I think Paramount's yeah. doing it. It's the best of both worlds. That was the best movie news I got all last year, yeah. was that Paramount yeah. was giving it a conventional theatrical release. They were not looking at the budget because they know nobody would actually see it in theaters. Although it's DiCaprio, so who knows? Mm-hmm. Um it's Leo. I mean, Leo, he Can't don't count miss. him out. Yeah. He is the last. And he doesn't do IP. I mean, I know it's a book, but it's just. And that's why when you avoid IP and obviously not everyone can do this, you remain the brand with the drive toward IP and the drive toward marquee characters is that the characters are the stars. The characters are the franchise. Mm-hmm. And what that means is there's no room. You know, when people didn't just all of a sudden lose their interest in original movies. Mm-hmm they lost their interest in movie stars. People would show up to Hitch, not because it was this, wow, it's an original romantic comedy. What a wonderful premise. I'm inspired by this original <laughs> studio programmer. No, it was, oh, it's a Will Smith romantic comedy hey, with Willie. a cute premise. It's basically a non-toxic pickup artist. I like that. Right, yeah. right. And then he reprised that role several years later in Aladdin, where he and, basically and was... plays the genie as Hitch. Yeah, I mean. And that is a big reason why that movie made a billion dollars. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, you know, speaking of, you know, big star vehicles, we touched on it before, but opening this weekend is Free Guy. And this is about as old fashioned as a, as a star vehicle gets. It's a, a big premise, not based on IP. And, you know, I guess what you would call a movie star at the center of it and Ryan Reynolds. How do we, you know, how do we feel about the chances of this opening weekend? It feels like people are putting a lot on this movie. Again, I've seen a lot of talk of, you know, after Suicide Squad bombed, if Free Guy bombs too, they might move the whole schedule. And and that's what's driving me nuts because, again, these are all movies that might have bombed anyway. Right. Yeah. So I'm you... inclined to think that Jungle, Squad, Jungle Cruise would have done better, but I don't know. Because there are just as many Dwayne Johnson movies that have opened with thirty-five million as fifty-five million. Right. How? I guess. Yeah. What is our? You know. What is our take on Jungle Cruise after two weekends? Clayton, you said that that is now up to fifty. So right now it's at sixty-five point four. But it's one hundred and twenty-one worldwide. Right. Yeah. Ridiculous two hundred million dollar budget. Right. Okay. 
same thing with Suicide Squad. When you can make Jumanji movies that look freaking spectacular mm-hmm. for 90 to 120, when you can make Rampage, which has as much holy crap action, monster action in the third act as a Godzilla movie for 120, there is no excuse, none, for spending $200 million on a Jungle Cruise movie, which frankly looks faker, and I, you know, in terms of the quality and immersion of its special effects work, than a movie like Free Guy, which takes place in a video game. So, so what are we what are we thinking the opening weekend of Free Guy is? Because this is on no streamer, right? Twenty million would be a miracle. Twenty million would be a miracle. It's tracking from fifteen to thirty. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. So I thirty mean, that's... would be a miracle in normal times. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that as well. Yeah. I mean, you I know, mean... it's 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 good reviews notwithstanding. I mean, Pixels bombed six years ago, back when people actually went to the movies. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a weird topic at this point too to do a video game premise because what video games are also changes so rapidly, and I think this is a movie that the year on the shelf makes it extra stale. Um, so yep, because this is a this is a GTA type uh, game that he's in, and I I don't know much about gaming, but. Isn't there a popular game right now where you are able to just play acoustic guitar as a character? I feel like that it's The Last of Us or something like that. And I feel like we are now in a different territory with video games than what Free Guy is showing. If by some miracle it's successful and we get a sequel, I'm sure the next one will be set in Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Is the, is Free Guy going to, and this could all be timing because the stuff that came out at the beginning of the summer opened in a better climate... Is Free Guy going to possibly do worse than the Hitman's wife's bodyguard? Oh, that's a scary thought. Um, well, yes, possibly. And and will will Don't Breathe Two beat it at the box office? Is there a possibility? Because now he's the hero. The Don't Breathe guy is the hero of the film. I guess. I'm thinking that I'm thinking the marketing is 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 hiding something. Yeah, I, I think Sony and friends are not stupid enough to make a homicidal rapist into the hero. You don't think a guy who inseminated people against their will with a turkey baster can become a hero of a studio film. That's that's a very interesting... Uh... <laughs> he might not be the hero we deserve, but maybe he's the hero we need right now. Po- possible. That should be the tagline. There we go. But no, I... I, I... And there's actually been hints, if you you know, the marketing, if you really read between the lines, you know, until his past comes up, you know, his sins come back to haunt him. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. I don't want to speculate on the twist in case I'm right, and I don't want to be a jerk, mm-hmm. but... I do think it's funny that if that does come to be the case, it will be a rare example of a studio hiding content that makes their movie less controversial and less problematic. Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? Because framing him as the protagonist is kind of nuts, and that's what that first uh, thing does, that first trailer. So, But there's a possibility, and I think there's a distinct possibility that that movie, Don't Breathe 2, will, out, uh, will make more money than Free Guy this weekend. Uh, that's always possible. Horror has been on a roll this summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's no secret that most of the franchise films that stuck around were horror films. They're cheap enough to not have to break records to break even. They horror films are still somewhat considered a communal theatrical experience. Yep. Um, and you know, in the same way that San Andreas did very well in California, and Into the Storm did very well in Tornado Country, this is a good time for healthy healthy coping. I don't want to get too navel gazing or think PC here, but yes, I, mean, I think. Horror films now will play as well, if not better, than they, now that we're all going through a real-life horror story. 
The catharsis yeah. is re- yeah. So the first film opened to twenty six point four, and that was in August twenty sixth of two thousand sixteen. So it was five years ago, and it legged out to eighty nine point two domestic. So obviously, it's not going to open to twenty six. Uh, that's not going to be a possibility. But where do we see that? Do we see it? It's tracking right now from eleven to sixteen. So. I mean, I, I would know. be very impressed if it hits anywhere near 16. I would be more expecting of Escape Room 2, which opened to what, $8 million? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, those are both good movies. I like both Escape Room films. Had that film opened to non COVID, I think it would have done better. And I think it was a yeah, sacrificial you know they, lamb. You yes. know, no one's going to get penalized for it, yada, yada, yada. They spent no money on ads for that film. I'm so I'm shocked. The ad spend was so low for that film. It opened to eight. Yeah, 8.8. But still, it's, it's, it's going to do around 40 on a 20 budget. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, on a 15 budget. It's not going to be super profitable, but they'll break even in the end. And it'll do well on PVOD. Yeah, exactly. Spiral's done 36 worldwide on a $20 million budget. It's not reviving a soft franchise, but no one's going to lose their shirt over it. Right, right. Well, I have a bet with Pat that there will not be another Saw movie in the next 10 years. And I bet a, a, a grand on that. So I could lose my shirt. So, so Scott, do you think that we'll see a Saw in the next 10 years? Or do you think I could, I could get that grand? Because already, I've already spent it. <laughs> that sounds like a Saw trap in the making. Um, <laughs> I think it's possible if, if Lionsgate has a streaming interest that they could certainly green light a 15 to 20, you know, 10 to $20 million Saw movie for mm-hmm. streaming and be fine if just the fans show up. Yeah, but it wouldn't be theatrical. You think it might go straight to the streamer. Unless there's something I'm missing about the PVOD numbers. Yeah. And... You know, granted, nobody tells me, you know, nobody tells anybody about the PVOD numbers. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, it's. Well, so Scott, that's a great thing you brought up because we are trying to put pressure on these companies, especially someone like Disney with their premier access to give us numbers. Because if these premier access, if they're acting like those are tickets, they're saying it's an equivalency, right? Because we know the other streamers, it's minutes, it's whatever. But they're trying to act like, you know, with this whole thing where, oh, look, uh, uh, Black Widow made over $100 million because look at the premier access. Right and now they're getting sued over it. Exactly. Because they were dumb and tried to equate the box office with the Disney Plus when the entire point of the lawsuit is they're saying, no, no, these are two different things. So so they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot. So what do you what do you think about that whole situation? I mean, do you do you th- more do you transparency think they need- is good? Yeah. But selective transparency is worse than no transparency at all. Yes. Because, you know, for example, you know, Netflix says, oh, our new movie did 65 mil- will do 65 million view in the first month. And we a most time we don't know if that's actually true. And B, I mean, from what I gather, that's pretty much what every Netflix movie on the front of the page does every week. They have a huge subscriber base and that's successful, but it also means that, you know, if every movie does that, then eventually they're going to realize they don't have to spend $200 million on a mm-hmm. Brothers action film to get the same viewership they were going to get from some 10-year-old Jason Statham movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. And but but watching a film for 13 minutes isn't making a conscious decision to pony up money for it, right? So that's the thing where those aren't equivalencies. So when when Disney wants to argue that this is a ticket, why not show us? Because 
we're here to tout your successes as well as your failures. And so if we can't distinguish between the two, how are we supposed to help? I mean, I'm not saying that we're here championing. We're not supposed to be championing. We're not supposed to be, you know, in the pocket. But we want to know the information so we can advocate. And it's just not happening. And and how do we how do we put pressure on these studios to do this? Well, I think I think there are some studios that would like to release this numbers, but there is a concern in terms of how they'll be interpreted. Mm-hmm. I think that to a certain extent, the, the I mean to a certain extent, the end goal of the studios is not to have any actually coherent you know analysis. Because mm-hmm. if the whole world just reports, wow, $60 million on Disney Plus, that's a lot of money. And there's nobody there to actually dig into whether that's actually a lot of money, then Disney wins. Right, right, right. So they they want to just send out press releases. They don't want Scott Mendelson at Forbes. They don't want the B.O. boys out there parsing through the data, telling people the truth, letting them know what really happened. They want to control the narrative. So... You know, us and, and and the other good people in our box office analyst field, we've gotta gotta stick together and we gotta put pressure on and we gotta just keep fighting the good fight. And I, I think there's value, especially, you know, not not to well yeah, I think there's great value if Universal would start releasing their PBOD figures. Yes. And we'd find out that there are you know, most of those films are small, would have bombed in theaters anyway, pictures that thanks to the PVOB model and a few weeks in theaters, those were profitable ventures. Yes. Because that means the, the best case scenario of what I'm seeing right now is this. Yes, movie theaters become basically a glorified video game arcade. Nothing's stopping that. Mm-hmm. By that I mean you're only going to get the biggest, most immersive, most can't get this at home type films. Mm-hmm. And I've been whining about that for six years. Now, that was before COVID. You know, as soon as we lost the go to the movies just to go to the movies crowd, that was the end game. Mm-hmm. But the other path is if movie theaters become a prestige item, a way to say this movie matters more than these other movies, then what we might see is more movies, a more diverse slate of movies in terms of budget, genre, subject matter, et cetera, et cetera, getting a one to three week theatrical release as a glorified DVD slash VOD advertising campaign. Yes. Yes. It would stink for me in terms of being a box office analyst, but I'll figure out it. You know, I'll become a master of streaming. I can figure it out. Um, But in terms of having more movies to talk about and more movies that make an impact at theatrical level, it might actually be a, be a, a, a good thing because the whole concept of, you know, tickets, you know, overall pre-COVID, overall box office is steadily rising. Ticket sales are slightly decreasing. But the problem is, as you said, and you're right, a much bigger piece of the overall box office is spent on a much smaller chunk of movies. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for studios. That might not be a problem for theaters. Because at the end of the day, a large popcorn sold for The Lion King costs the exact same amount as a large popcorn sold for Hustlers. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah, I, it's it's very interesting. I, I do agree that it might have to become more of a volume business going forward where if you get a movie out there, you collect this big opening weekend, and there needs to just be a lot more changeover uh, in product for these theaters. You know, like pretty much every weekend, other than if something is just going wild and, and has an incredible hold, 
Stuff is cycling in and out every week. And you know what? Show an episode of Succession at a movie theater. Show, you know, the Game of Thrones. You know, it might have to become that type of model with these studios where they got a streamer. They they put stuff in theaters, throw something out there for a weekend, and just always have new product in these movie theaters. Well, here's an example of something like that. The Bo Burnham comedy special Inside, which did so well on Netflix that it got a theatrical release. Now, I don't know how much that film has made, but it's still one of those things where they thought it's worth putting it in the theater in order to make some dough. And it's something to drive people to buy popcorn, to buy uh, to go to the Nighthawk and get a pasta dinner. Th- that's what they're trying to do anyway. Right. I agree. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, obvious example, I would have loved to have seen Zack Snyder's Justice League in theaters. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, it was formatted for freaking IMAX screens. I wish I had gotten to see it on an IMAX screen. Yes, um, yes. I was tempted on that one charity screening, but it was on my wife's birthday. It's like, eh, no. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's exactly the type of movie that, I mean, I guess it came out in January or February, so that's still a really rough time this past year. Oh, yeah, but, it was but, impossible to do that. But but otherwise, you take that type of movie, that could have opened to $20 million or something if you, you just threw it in, in, you know, a couple of thousand theaters, just because it had so much buzz around it. Well, and, you know, the joke I was always making, you know, about releasing it in February or March is like, look, if Zack Snyder tells all his friends on Twitter to wear a mask, they'll wear a mask. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's built in that the masks, it, just tell, tell everyone to go in a, in a plastic Joker mask or put a Batman mask on. It's, it's, it would have been the, the most direct mask-wearing directive we ever had. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think there is a marketplace for you know sort of special event-type screenings during off hours, during the middle of the day, during right. you know, a, you know, a Tuesday night. Um, and I think theaters know this too, because we're seeing a lot more of that. You know, the fathom events has been you know, running full time for years. Right, right. And what about catalog films? Jurassic Park was one of the biggest earners of last summer. You've got something like Goodfellas. I mean, Pat has said this. Play that in, in, a, in a theater in Bensonhurst until the end of time that yes. that's going to make you money it's just you it, we need somebody who's doing like a money ball thing right like we call it popcorn ball well where we know you know i live in this market i know what this market wants let me program these catalog films and these studios need to lower the price on these catalog films so you can make this possible you know give them give the theater something if you want to help them out give them that right make this Make this less expensive for them. So you put this in. They they're starting to they're giving you product. The theater has product, and people will go see these films on the big screen. Yeah, but once it's obviously once it's safer to do so, and mm-hmm. that's obviously we're talking about a you know positive future. And yes. yeah, I, if I you know for example you know there are you know if there are old films that existed sort of before IMAX, before PLF, and you can format them so they actually look good in those formats. Yes, I would pay five bucks to see Tim Burton's Batman in IMAX. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would pay, you know, I would pay five bucks to see The Return of the King in IMAX. Um, Absolutely. And right. I was so mad that they did the Thor of the Rings trilogy in IMAX like a month before the California theaters opened because I absolutely would have done that. So... So Scott, we've we you've been so generous tonight uh, with your time. Thank you so much for doing this. So before we insight. head out, is there anything else that you want to 
uh, mention about either the Suicide Squad, you know, or what your out. I guess I guess let's end on what is your general outlook for the rest of this year at box office in the sense are. What are some things that you think are are just no-brainers? You know, we talked Venom, Let There Be Carnage, that you are so confident about that these are going to be the big bright spots. And then I guess just, you know, what are what are, uh, some of the big movies that you think, I think we mentioned Dune, that might be our pick, all of us, that might be the big budget problem areas through the rest of this year? Uh, I think Dune is obviously at the top of that particular list, unfortunately. Uh, Matrix, I think, is a coin toss. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, you have Keanu Reeves back. I don't know why Lawrence Fishburne was not invited. I don't know what's going on there. I think that's nuts. That's to me is like making The Force Awakens without Han Solo. Right. Um, but whatever, in Wachowski's we trust. Um, and I do think there's a generation, my generation, that grew up actually liking the Matrix sequels. That's probably going to help. Um, I will enjoy seeing all the retrospective. No, the Matrix sequels are good, actually, you know, thick pieces in December. I will probably end one or two. Um, <laughs> but you know, again, that could go either way. That could be, you know, I'm not talking dollar to dollar here, but that could right. be a Jurassic World blowout or it could be an Independence Day resurgence, you know, flop. Right. Um, obviously, if, you know, assuming everything is somewhat healthy and everything actually comes out as scheduled, obviously, No Time to Die is going to be a monster. Because people want to see it. It looks good. It's supposed to be very good. It's the last Daniel Craig Bond film. And for people who like blockbusters but don't like comic book movies or cartoons, it's the first tentpole since Fast 9. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they got to they gotta keep on this year because, yeah, I feel like that is just a no-brainer. I think that is just going to be a giant hit. That's just such generation spanning popular IP and it's going to be so easy to make that feel like a huge event. Yeah. And other stuff, I think, you know, if I had to put a bet on it, I would say Spider-Man no way home is the year's biggest global grocer. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's gonna be the first billion dollar movie since star Wars. That's a lot of ifs. Um, I would hope it would make at least as much as say, you know, Detective Chinatown, which made 685 in just China, or mm-hmm. High Mob, which made 825 in just China. But who knows? Right. I think I think if it plays in China, it'll do well because the last Spider-Man movie made 200 million. I mean, and it, China that, likes Spider-Man back when they weren't necessarily crazy about comic book movies. Right. I, I, with that movie, it really does feel like if international box office is is open, you know, at a normal rate, then that is just going to be. Yeah, gigantic 900 million, 1 billion for sure. I mean, that's just the most pop, one of the most popular franchises. One thing I should have mentioned and I forgot, and I apologize. When we were talking about studios and their, their, you know, will they delay, won't they delay? Yes, Sony has a lot of big movies that they'd like to actually have make money in theaters, but they also just signed a very big deal with Netflix as a first ATV window, which Mm kind of gives them a cushion. Now, normally I would say it's a cushion for, you know, films like What's About to Have in Hollywood, Baby Driver, All the Money in the World, films that we hope people will go to see, but we don't know. Um, but in this landscape, I would say that provides an incentive for them not to delay most of their films further down the line. Because even if they underperform at the box office, they're still getting money from Netflix. Right, right. Yeah. And, and with Bond, you you hear a lot about there's just so many merchandising deals that they just 
have to put this out or else car companies are going to start suing them. And when you get to the point where car companies are going to sue you, you got to just, you got to well, that's That's why Universal moved Dominions to next summer mm-hmm. because they have a lot of product tie-ins that were somewhat predicated on a conventional theatrical success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did not have that with F9. That was more, you know, live or die by the box office. So, uh, Scott, thanks so much for being on the BO Boys. Is there uh, is there anything in particular coming up this week that you want to plug, give a little tease to some articles you got brewing coming up on Forbes? I don't I don't have time to plan that far ahead. <laughs> I wish I did. And every time I I swear, every time I tell like a you know, either one of my editors or a studio contact, hey, I'm I'm doing this piece, I hope to have it, blah, 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 when my kids get sick. Every time. So uh, thanks so much, Scott. So everyone listening, of course, you could email us at theboboyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what you think Free Guy is going to do this weekend. You know, we, we've all sort of gone back and forth tonight on whether Free Guy or Don't Breathe 2 is going to open up number one this weekend. So email us, theboboyspodcast at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts. Of course, also, Clint, you could find us on our Substack, which is uh, thebo.boys.substack.com. And Scott, you were the inspiration for this podcast. And I mean, you're, of course, the inspiration for me and Clayton starting to dabble in writing some box office articles on our Substack. So everyone visit our Substack. We got a bunch of trailer trackings up there. Scott, that's our uh, format where we go through a brand new, just dropped movie trailer and give, you know, second by second reasons for whether we think it's going to do, you know, we're adding or subtracting uh, to its opening weekend box office based on what we're seeing in the trailer. So did you do one for Paw Patrol? We did not do Paw Patrol. We did. What was the last one you did last week, Clayton? We did Ghostbusters Afterlife, I think, was the, was that the latest one? Yeah, that one. I mean, we've had uh, Many Saints of Newark is up there, Jackass Forever, yeah. So visit our Substack and see us basically trying to, I would say rip off, but, but, you know, be like the great Scott Mendelson from Ford. As I always say, rip off, don't remake. Exactly, exactly. We're not remaking you. This is not a reboot. I'd like to really quick just just do a plug because I was on Clubhouse, this app Clubhouse, this weekend. Okay. And our friend of the podcast, uh, Brandon Gray, founder of Box Office Mojo, has created a whole group there called the Box Office Revival. And you can go on there and talk to people. It's really fun. It's called Clubhouse. It's awesome. Pat, you need to come on. I know you've been invited, but check that out. We were talking about Suicide Squad. I was getting a lot of good ideas for this for this episode. So thank you to everybody on Clubhouse. Awesome. You know, I'll definitely we've had Brandon Gray on our show before. Great guy, box office, you know, legend, creator of Box Office Mojo. Not the not the reason for the box office mojo that we currently have to deal with, no. of course. No not, comment. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I will definitely check out his Sunday night show on Clubhouse. And I think that's it, Clayton. I that's think we've it. we've said it all. So until next time, we'll, we'll smell you at the box, box office. office. Nailed, Nailed it. it.